The views and opinions we express in this podcast are our own and do not represent the official position of the Youth in Government Program or the YMCA. You're listening to YAG and Recreation, a podcast on which we discuss YAG and Recreation. And every week we pick a topic and reflect on various aspects of YAG using that topic as a guide. We hope that you, our listeners, enjoy exploring the wide world of YAG with us. And if you're a current advisor or delegate, that you might get some discussion ideas to take back to your own delegation. This week, we're on our second in a series on parliamentary procedure, focusing on how non-legislative roles work within our rules. Joining me, as usual, is my brother James. What's up, James? You know, I'm feeling good. We had uh, District 5's district event yesterday, um, as we record this, uh, and uh, and yeah, it went well, and I'm, I'm feeling good about youth and government. Yay! I had District 1's district event yesterday, Ooh, and I'm feeling great. Oh, wonderful. They were great. It was great. Excellent. They were tired at the end of it, and I was, like, invigorated. <laughs> That's back when I was training to be a teacher. That's what they used to say that in a good classroom at the end of the day, the teacher should be pumped and ready for more and the kids should be going home just wiped out and ready, ready to take a nap. Oh, good. So we're doing something right. Yay. I think so. I think so. Fantastic. Well, I will call this podcast to order. Um, James, you and I have been trying to piece together a session memory from long ago. Oh, goodness. Yes. Um, eventually, I think we'll share in a future episode. It absolutely will be featured on um, a future episode. But doing, doing this kind of like memory recall, we've spent a lot of time on the online archives of TVW's website. Mm. Um, and I just want to recommend that to anyone who wants either to take a trip down memory lane if you've been around for a while or to get a glimpse of what sessions like, especially for recent um, participants who've only been with us for virtual activities. These old videos are, I think, a great picture of how things work when we're all together in a building. So I was watching the youth governor's closing address from 2008, and um, that's what I'd like to share today for my invocation. The governor that year was Eric Ishida, and his closing address uh, in 2008, which I think it's, it's worth noting that 2007 was kind of a tumultuous year mm-hmm. for our program. Mm-hmm. And so he was wrapping up his final year, um, and he was really proud, I think, of the work that was accomplished. Um, But he talked about dancing at the governor's ball and about how he was shy about it, but that he thought that he should put himself out there because so many participants come to our program and maybe politics is what they're shy or nervous about. And that he was emboldened by all of the delegates in our program um, who are so supportive and encouraging that it gave him the courage to do something that was uncomfortable for him. His words are so great. Um, He says, I still don't quite know quite how to dance, but mastering dance moves, just like mastering the intricacies of the great issues of our time, is not something that can be done in a single evening or a single youth-led session, Um, which I think is true and super good to think about as like what we're doing here in this moment. We're not going to be perfect at it. We're going to be learning. We're going to be practicing. We're going to be getting better. Toward the end of his uh, closing address, Um, He said, the work that we do may not always be conducted in majestic surroundings such as these, but I know that you will continue to be involved. 
And I just think like back then he was talking about students graduating and going on to other things and that their voice was needed and that it wasn't always going to be in the confines of youth-led session, but also like out in the real world and at home and in their schools and with their families and friends. But right now we're not in those majestic surroundings, but his confidence to know that we would still be doing important things, I think was great and is inspirational. And so even though we aren't able to be in those beautiful marble halls, sitting in the swivelly leather chairs on the dogwood carpet, um, the work that the delegates do is still really important and we still need them to come and keep coming. Wow. So you should go watch that if you haven't watched that closing address. Man, that is your best one yet. That's so good. You know, um, I have such fondness for the 2008 major officer team. Um, and I mean, any group of major officers is a collection of really talented individuals, but uh, I, there was something just kind of magical about that group that year. I, I have to say, the moment you mentioned Governor Ishida um, and that dancing, I remember, I remember that closing. <laughs> it was so perfectly him. Um, it really was. Charming and uh, open and that bit about the surroundings I had not remembered. And that really is, that really is moving when I think about it in our context this year. So thanks for that. I will definitely go back and watch that closing joint. Yeah, it was, it was a really good one. Um, all right. Well, uh, we'll move along to old business. Um, I wasn't super sure I had old business, but um, while we were prepping right before we started recording, you reminded me. Last week, we talked about kind of the basics of Parley Pro, and I don't know that we highlighted the fact that we always run everything through the presiding officer. So a, a student gets recognized by the presiding officer, introduces themselves, and then state their intent. And if they're asking questions, they don't ask the proponent of the bill to yield to them. They ask the presiding officer if the proponent would yield usually the exchanges will the proponent yield to a series will you yield yes yes and it's super important that we do that and it helps things stay orderly um, and so i wanted to make sure we mentioned that i agree that's important i think that i alluded to it at least in passing um way back in our respect episode although listeners should catch me um if i'm wrong about that <laughs> but um but yes, I totally agree. That That is an important thing and, and not one that occurred to us last week. You got old business? Just an observation of my own um, from my district event, which is to realize that some of the most basic rules of Parley Pro, um, which again was last week's theme, um, are things we don't really observe right now or can't really observe. Um, call, like recognizing someone... Um, is often kind of difficult on Zoom screens. So often I've noticed presenting officers adopting more loose procedures for recognition. And certainly, like, one of the most basic things, at least it's on my cheat sheet, is, you know, that you stand and say your name and delegation and then you sit when you're done. But that's awkward on Zoom. Um, people aren't standing and sitting. Um, right. Uh, they, they use words usually, you know, yielding the floor, saying I yield the floor or thank you or something like that that sort of indicate their concluding um but i was just realizing that even some very simple principles of how we conduct our business 
uh, are going to have to change a little bit this year um, for us to be effective in a virtual environment. And that's probably a good thing. It'll be a, a good learning experience for us. Well, I think it is important uh, for inclusivity to have a way that doesn't require you stand and sit to Absolutely. be legitimately recognized because we do have delegates who aren't able to stand. We do, and we have in the past. You're right. It, it's an ableist yeah. thing to just have a, a simple instruction like that. The cheat sheet right. really should be should give more options. Right. Yeah, so some language around like the fact that you're done talking. A lot of delegates, now that we're virtual, I've noticed have started saying that they yield their time back, mm-hmm. um, which is something from Congress. I think yes. maybe Kona um, delegates brought that in, and it works really well, I think. Um, I think what we're needing this year is just some consistency um, and some information. Mm-hmm. I think also with the um, with lag time and like digital challenges, mm-hmm. we have to be way more patient and flexible because if you call on someone and they forget to unmute, it can be awkward or if they lose their internet connection or if they freeze. We're learning a lot this year and I think it's going to help us put together some really good and clear instructions for the future, even for when we're back together in the same room. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, on to new business. It's the time that everyone waits for, where we allow James five uninterrupted minutes to dive deeply into a topic of his, uh, again, this week's sort of choosing. So, James, what are you going to talk about tonight? This week's topic will be uh, the governor's cabinet. Of the program areas we'll talk about today, it's the one that I know best um, from working with them directly in recent years. So uh, the governor's cabinet are the collection of uh, advisors appointed by our youth governor to um, support the governor in their work. And uh, the rules of order are really very broad in determining what the cabinet does, much more broad than for most of our other positions. Um, there's, there's the allusion to the fact that there will probably be a chief of staff, but even that is not made mandatory by the rules. Um, And the governor is instructed to appoint a member from each district. So there's a sense that it'll be distributed across the districts. But after that, there's just a description of some activities that a cabinet member might do. But there's no guarantee if you are a cabinet member that you will get to do any of them um, because your role is really totally determined by what the governor asks of you. Um, This is a role that came into being about 20 years ago when... um, a student observed that a governor normally has sort of a staff and agency heads and things like that. Um, and uh, we didn't at the time. The governor basically had one person who assisted them, a chief of staff. Um, and so uh, ever since then, we've had this sort of tenuous thing about like, well, what can a governor's cabinet member do? How can they, what can they do for the governor other than just whatever the governor asks? Um, and so when we're thinking about the rules of order and speaking, governor's cabinet members are allowed to speak on the floor for us, um, which they really aren't allowed to do in the actual legislature. And this sort of takes the place of the governor's ability to lobby members of the legislature um, about the governor's agenda. Um, The rules of order do not restrict it other than to say that they have to be recognized by the presiding officer. Um, So they can speak for or against a bill. They can't ask questions, but they can speak for or against. As a practical matter, our presiding officers have been pretty um, careful to limit the rights of cabinet members. Um, Our speakers of the House and our lieutenant governors have always, um, over the last 15, 20 years, held that the governor has the ability to veto an act. And so cabinet members, there's no reason for them to speak against an act 
Um, if the governor doesn't like it, the governor will veto it and then we'll see what happens. Um, but the governor has no ability to like sign something that the legislature doesn't get to the governor's desk. So um, cabinet members are allowed to speak for acts and generally they've been allowed to speak for and against other kinds of measures that the governor doesn't have the right to veto, like a memorial. Um, it's also generally been true of late that cabinet officers get recognized at the end of debate right before closing remarks because the presiding officers feel like if the debate has already been super positive on the bill, they'd like to leave that time in the hands of their chamber. And if everybody has sounded really positive about the bill, there's no need to take up the chamber's time with time set aside for the cabinet members. So our cabinet members have the opportunity to speak on the chamber floor, but in a very sort of narrowly circumscribed way. Um, the other responsibilities for a cabinet member um, are just assigned, again, by the youth governor, um, often with input from their chief of staff. Um, what the roles are change between years. It's not as though I could give you a list of what the roles are, but just as a couple of examples, sometimes a cabinet member is asked to be a press secretary or something like that. Sometimes a cabinet member is assigned to be, uh, say, a speechwriter or a legislative liaison or something like that. Um, some years, cabinet members have been made like head of education or head of environment or something like that. It just sort of depends. And often, even once a cabinet member is given a role, that role is modified and refined during session itself in response to the office's needs and the changing um, priorities of the youth governor. And that's just, that's normal. And the cabinet is trained to see that as normal. The advice that I would give to students, um, students who don't expect to be a cabinet member, I think it's still worth remembering that your district should have a member of the cabinet. In an ordinary year, someone from your district will be the governor's advisor. And so even if the youth governor is from maybe the other side of the state, um, delegates really should see that person. Like the reason we spread the cabinet out across the state is so that people have the ability to access the governor. And I think delegates should really see that if you get the chance to speak to a cabinet member, that is really a great way to get your ideas straight to the governor themselves. So you, sh you shouldn't be shy in reaching out to find opportunities to speak to them. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm glad you mentioned the whole not speaking out against acts, but they should be able to speak against memorials. Yes. Yeah. Well, are you ready to move on to some dorky fun? I would love some dorky fun. Hopefully this is fun and dorky. <laughs> Is it YAG story time? Because our listeners reliably inform us that that is dorky and fun. A little bit. So, James, you've worked as a lobbyist advisor. Once. And I have as well, although I was the pal for a couple of years. That's right. You ran the lobbying program. Pre-cell phone days, I definitely bought a set of walkie-talkies so that I could keep in touch with all the lobbyist officers around <laughs> the Capitol campus. Wonderful. They were colored, and I called them like red leader and green leader. Um, <laughs> super fun. When we were young, my memories are that the lobbyists had a lot of latitude. They could kind of, they were running all over the place and mm -hmm. speaking. They, could, they had to get yielded to, but there was no prep process for that. They could wander into the wings right in the middle of a bill being debated, send a page note out, get yielded to, come on the floor, speak. And this is where I think we disagree. I remember them being able to ask questions. I mean, I don't remember them asking questions, but I'll defer to you. I remember it being like wild and exciting and a little bit disruptive. <laughs> there were some bills where like, I think only lobbyists would speak almost. If a lobbyist could get eight or nine people all raising their placards, any one of whom would yield to them. Yeah, back then that was allowed. And so it was really easy for lobbyists to get themselves out on the floor. Yeah. And they had to, as paperwork in advance, they had to write a position paper. 
Um, and I think they were also required to co-sponsor a bill, but they had to write a position paper they got to pick the topic of. Yeah, and those papers simply went somewhere. My memory is that nothing, (laughs) they were not used for anything. I don't think they were used for anything. So I went digging through my box of miscellaneous paperwork that I haven't filed away. And I did find a page that does not have a date on it. The heading says, YMCA Youth and Government, Washington State Youth Legislature, Differences Between Floor and Committee Procedures. And it has a whole bunch of information. And at the bottom, it says yielding. And in committee, voting members can yield to anyone with subsequent motions in order as if the delegate yielded to was initially recognized by the chair. And so in committee, we don't really use yielding. Everybody can speak in committee. Yes. But then it says for floor procedures, voting members can yield to each other only to ask a question or series of questions, which is not how we do this now. That's correct. Um, They can only ask a question. But then it goes on to say voting members can also yield to a lobbyist to speak on a bill or to ask questions. So at some point in the last 26 years, wherever this piece of paper came from, (laughs) it was written somewhere that lobbyists were allowed to ask questions. I I defer to you. So I'm pretty confident that when we were young advisors Mm -hmm. and participants, lobbyists did ask questions on the floor okay um at some point in the 2004 to 2008 range we definitely stopped letting them do that our rules of order say that they can be yielded to to testify i think on the floor which we've interpreted in our rules as you can only speak out in favor or against correct um and we continue to do they they yeah there's a whole process of they have to get yielded to by the member, and then when they are, the member leaves the floor and the lobbyist comes on to the nearest microphone when we're in person. Mm-hmm. And then when the lobbyist is done talking, they put the microphone down, they leave the floor, and the member who yielded to them can come back. They That member who yields is allowed to vote, even though they weren't technically on the floor for the whole bill. That's correct. We stopped somewhere in there, pre-2008, I think, requiring position papers. Yes. Um, but in there somewhere the real life lobbyists who are were on our board at the time wanted our lobbyists experience to be closer to real life lobbying mm-hmm. and had them select interest groups or organizations to represent yes i know that this was true in 2003 and 2004 so i'm pretty sure that it had to have been 2001 yes because at evergreen yeah. there was the lobbying thing and that was when the pro life and the pro choice people were on tables next to each other at the reception yes. and got in a big argument yes i was about to say so it definitely started like 2001 it was in its infancy i think that's true um and i remember it being really challenging for teens because what they picked would limit their the scope of what they could speak on. Yes, and my memory is that um, some students decided um, after a year or two of this that if they listed that they were lobbyists for the League of Women Voters, yep. that they could lobby on any issue that might affect a woman who was a voter. <laughs> the other one was the ACLU, I think. Uh, there were some people who would do ACLU, yeah. The only lobbyist I ever had who was good at this was a lobbyist for the ACLU. Interesting. Okay. Because in, two, in 2004, I remember him in the wings coming up to me constantly saying, hey, um, on this bill, what does the ACLU think? And I would help him try to figure out from a civil liberties perspective how the bill might affect the interests of the ACLU. 
And he was just like, sometimes he was out there arguing the total opposite of his personal opinion because he was scrupulously honest about it. One lobbyist of the year that year. Um, Which, you know, honestly, I think like that was the intent from the board members was for the lobbyists to not just be out there pushing their own interests. Yes. You're right that that was the good intention of the board was for lobbyists to realize that when you are a lobbyist, you're trying to represent your client's interests. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So um, I'm going to say it's the 2008 legislative year because it was Eric Ishida who pitched this idea to us. It was. Um, He went to the Youth Governors Conference after he was elected and met with um, other governors from around the country and learned about other state youth legislature programs and how they ran their lobbying areas. And he came back with a proposal that really dramatically shifted our model. Um, I think it was the Michigan model, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, It was from some other state's um, approach. And I don't know if this is the right point for me to do this, but I should acknowledge this is one of the things I was wrong about. Because I remember being at that program committee and saying, this is not going to work. It's way too complicated. It's a nice idea, but this is not actually going to function. And it was complicated. It was. We renamed the, the leadership. And so that's why, to this day, we continue to say lobbyist officer because we're old. Um, mm-hmm. it's, they, they got changed to lobbyist executives because they were in charge of firms and the chief lobbyist executive was overseeing all of those firms and the firms were assigned um, legislation to represent. And so that kind of helped us with, instead of representing organizations, they were given a slate of bills. The idea was to pass the most and they, there were points and there were winners and <laughs> we continue to this day to, to refine the procedures but they still are. They're broken into teams or firms. Um, and we've adjusted their speaking privileges a lot between 2008 and now. Uh, we used to have them. There was like a quarter sheet form they had to fill out with the committee leader's signature and some, whoever was yielding to them. And the proponent of the bill had to sign off on them speaking or they had to get two committee members if they were going to speak out against a bill. Um, and they had to turn that in a certain t- amount of time ahead of speaking it was crazy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was oppressive yes um we we've reduced it down to i mean virtual session is is going to be different but in in person they now just kind of have to get permission from their firm leader that yeah this is a bill you should be going and speaking on in the chamber um and they have to i think write down who is um yielding to them so that when the presiding officer sees a placard up and they have a lobbyist form in front of them they would know that that person's yielding to a lobbyist Yes. Um, and so that, that way they can kind of manage, are there too many lobbyists? Do we want to make sure we hear from a lobbyist? That kind of a thing. So when the lobbyists go on the floor, they are allowed to speak out in favor or speak out against. Um, and that's, that's the limitations on the floor for them. So one thing I think I should mention, just because I think it's really interesting and, and kind of cool, uh, it's something I never would have thought of myself, is the chief lobbyist... Um, seems to have the right to just decide at any given moment um, to change point values um, or to create new categories. Um, and my, my observation from talking with students of mine who've been in the lobbying program, it's a scenario where, like, if the chief lobbyist gets word that, like, you know, we haven't seen any lobbyists down in the O'Brien house, suddenly the announcement will be made to the various lobbyist execs, hey, 
um, triple bonus points on anybody proponing an O'Brien bill in the next, you know, four hours or something. <laughs> like, they'll create these incentives. Like, oh, hey, there aren't any flyers being handed out this year. What happened? Double points on flyers from now through Friday night or something like that. And they'll, it'll create this sort of demand. It's a fire sale. Yeah, I mean, it's like, a, it's a free market approach, basically, right? Like, uh, they're yeah. creating, they're creating a demand for particular kinds of lobbying service to help keep the lobbyists active i will say that in more recent years i've heard more and more lobbyists say like why do we even bother with points like who cares like it's not all that important and i think because they don't have any memory of course how could they of the years before this system when without the points to motivate them a lot of lobbyists were just kind of like some were super keyed up and some were very listless um yes that in fact there is something kind of cool about this system that again i was skeptical of but it really did work has worked i hope will keep working um yeah to... well and they keep refining it yes um i think it's a really cool part of that lobbying program that the chief does get to kind of sculpt mm-hmm. what they want their program to look like within parameters mm-hmm. for their year of like what what do they want to give out points for how do they want to en- encourage competition without making it like cutthroat Mm -hmm. um what are ways that they can develop like connections between program areas um it gives them an opportunity to like take a a framework and build something out of it that they leave for the next year and whoever comes behind them takes what they like leaves the rest and adds new stuff Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um i promised a surprise for you oh yeah i have some lobbyist handbooks from 1981 oh my gosh 84 Four and 1986. Oh my gosh. In there, it tells you all about lobbying and like what the lobbyists can do and the role of a lobbyist, responsibilities in Olympia, training tools. And in the In Olympia, it says the lobbyists will need to do research in order to establish convincing influence. Lobbyists may influence committee members outside of the committee meeting and after a given bill passes on to the Senate or House for debate. They may attempt to influence the voting by distributing handbills, meeting with youth legislators, etc. Lobbyists may not speak on the floor of the Senate or House. Oh, my. That was 1981. Okay. Okay. All right. So then I have 1984. Mm-hmm. And so the same number five under in Olympia ends with lobbyists may speak on the floor of the Senate or House, provided that a member of that body has yielded her or his floor time. Huh. Yeah. So, and like the the paper, the flyer for 1986 is significantly thicker and it has all sorts of things. I feel like I saw in here somewhere that they were suggesting that lobbyists um, stage people, supporters on the floor to hold up pictures during debate. Oh my goodness. Man, man, I wish there was a recording from like the 84 Youth Ledge. I would love to see I know. it. I think that would be so interesting. Huh. At the end, the, the point of this entire article is that every member of the delegation should get involved in the lobbying process. You should all become comfortable with the ways the average citizen can make democracy work for us. Most of the lobbying work is done before Olympia. Leaflets and publicity stunts should be brought with you. Information will be difficult to obtain once you are there. Of course, this is the 80s. Of course. Everybody should know how to lobby, participate in the lobbying process, then gain permission to speak on the floor where all the action is. Hmm. But so obviously in the 80s, someone had the idea that lobbyists don't have enough Mm -hmm. 
access to legislators yeah. by passing in the hallway yeah. that in addition to those things, they should be given the right to speak on the floor if they're yielded to. But I think these handbooks are so helpful in saying like, here are the ways you can be influential and that everybody should know mm-hmm. how the lobbying program works to be able to utilize it. Like if you don't understand how lobbyists work, it's hard to know how to get their help. Right. But if you're a legislator and you've got a bill coming up in the house and you think it's a great bill, when it goes to the Senate, you don't get to present it there. Right. And if you don't have somebody who's ready to present it for you, a lobbyist can. Right. They get to present bills on the floor. And so it's really great if you have one in your delegation. But if you don't, you can swing by the lobbying area and find somebody. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say that that's the most unusual thing our lobbyists do for us, just because it has so little to do with what a lobbyist normally would. Speaking for right. or against a bill is a not a bad model, right? This is their opportunity. Right. It's as though they've come into the member's office to lobby them, except that our members have no offices, right? Right. Um, presenting a bill on a member's behalf, this is them just filling in the gap of, it is very difficult to coordinate across a bicameral legislature, but we don't have all of the systems and processes that the House and the Senate actually use to reconcile measures and and coordinate we don't have parties right you know if especially if you come from a smaller delegation you don't have anyone in the other chamber or you do but they don't like your bill you know whatever it might be um lobbyists sort of fill some gaps for us really usefully in ways that really don't reflect what an actual lobbyist does um but but it's super important for our program yeah well we've talked far too long about lobbying but that's okay (laughs) we're gonna move on to our elections roundup yeah <laughs> on the assistant attorney general we talked about the state attorney general back in i believe episode two yes so we're not going to talk about that but the assistant attorneys general um this is a position that um, is available to students with at least a year of experience in our program who are in 10th through 12th grade it's one that each district elects one every single year assistant attorneys general have the following responsibilities. Review legislation prior to the session in consultation with the state attorney general and advise legislators and others on the constitutionality of proposed bills. The bill's sponsors must be notified if there are any questions regarding a bill's legality or constitutionality. Propose bill amendments which bring the language of a bill into consistency with the Washington State Constitution with the consent of the bill's sponsor. AGs may not change the intent of legislation or significantly alter wording, except to meet constitutional or legal criteria. Amendments proposed by the AGs shall be allowed during committee, Senate, House, O'Brien House, Sherberg Senate, or Governor's consideration. Suggest more substantive amendments during committee sessions only, consistent with the rights and duties of all delegates. Speak only on constitutional or legal matters when requested on behalf of the attorney general. Attorneys general have no debate privileges. It's a really funny job. I was thinking about it this week because in some ways it's two kind of different jobs for an assistant AG. On Wednesday and on the lead up to Wednesday, it's a very um, self-directed kind of job in a lot of ways. Um, in my ex- yeah. in my experience, an assistant attorney general will have been asked to cover two or three committees. Those committees will be full of bills that are in just dire shape, right? B- 
bills that if passed would do nothing or would do the opposite of their intent. Um, right. Yeah. And the attorney general is the assistant attorney general is really just sort of asked to figure it out, sit down with people, give them advice, go back and forth, make sure they're shuttling people to the right places, explaining. Well, and that's mm-hmm. that's the point of them pre doing that the the pre work they talk about yes. reviewing legislation prior to session is that they get trained exactly. and then they have that time between training and session to draft amendments. Exactly. The constitutional opinion side of things can occur in committee but usually they're so busy with just the basic legalities in committee that it's not until the floor in my experience that attorneys general are very active in giving constitutional opinions that's where things i think get a little bit more hierarchical in our attorneys general's offices the state attorney general is the one who signs off on constitutional interpretation and so um as an assistant attorney general, you've got a lot of opportunity to lobby the state AG if you think they're getting something wrong. But there are times when an assistant attorney general's job is simply to go uh, into a chamber and deliver an opinion that isn't their constitutional reading of the issue. It's their office's reading of the issue. And no, when they proposed amendments for constitutionality on the floor are those amendments voted on by the chamber the motion to amend a bill on the chamber floor has to be made by a member of the chamber the attorney general can't they don't have any privileges right but that motion is only in order when amendment language has been given in a in an opinion by the attorney general for their chamber so basically the only time a member of the floor a member on the floor can make a motion to amend is if specific language has been given by the AG's office and they say I move to amend and I want what they just said. You talked during your deep dive about the governor's cabinet being the last voice. Yes. The AG's are the first voice. If That's if the presiding officer knows they're there, if they are coming with amendment language, they would be invited to speak after opening but before debate. Yes. And in fact, presiding officers have been so strict about this of late that there have been situations where the AG wasn't ready to go at the start of debate and the presiding officer refused to recognize them thereafter. There's a whole thing about whether or not we should or shouldn't pass bills that are unconstitutional. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that subject? Well, I mean... There are so many laws that come through that then have to be interpreted by the courts anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is how it works. Mm-hmm. The legislature builds the laws. The judicial system interprets them and makes decisions based on what the laws say. Mm-hmm. So I think that purposefully unconstitutional things can bring issues to the surface. Yeah. I mean, I'm of two minds, and it's because I've seen both sides of this drop the ball. Um, I've seen situations where assistant attorneys general gave really good, thoughtful constitutional rulings, and the chamber just doesn't seem to care at all. Like, this is a bill that is simply against the Constitution. If you've got a problem with it, you need to amend the U.S. Constitution, and the chamber just says, eh. (laughs) And I find that frustrating because I think, well, that sort of robs the assistant attorneys general of the chance to do their job, right? Um, right? This is an important aspect of their work and i think our students need to be trained to understand that the ags have a lot more time and research and training in constitutional interpretation than the members of the chamber do and for that reason they their expertise needs to be respected so that that's one side of it 
On the other side of it, we have had some strange ideologically limited um, perspectives from state AGs in the past few years. Uh, not every one of them, but um, I remember one particular instance um, we were contacted in the governor's office and the attorneys general were letting us know that they thought something was unconstitutional. And when we went to look at it, it was a memorial calling for a constitutional amendment. And, and we contacted them back and said, well, it can't be unconstitutional to say that you want the language of the constitution to change. And the AG's office response right. was, but it's against the constitution. And so that one was a situation where it really was just sort of frustrating to feel like, these were people who just didn't like the idea, <laughs> but right. they were so committed to arguing against the idea that they didn't recognize that the, the opinion they were giving was just a sort of opinion opposed to changing the Constitution, as opposed to interpreting whether or not a law would violate a constitutional principle. So I, I think sometimes we do need the AG's office to think a little more carefully about when they're being a legislative advocate versus when they're being a sort of judiciary proxy interpreting things for us uh, and on the flip side i think we need our chambers um, and our governor's office to be more deferential to good constitutional reasoning from the ag's office should we talk about who who would do well in this role we usually like to do that yeah for that these. would be great i recently have the teens i've listened to running for this role mm -hmm. want to help people mm -hmm. Like to be able to reach out and support and help people get their ideas into a format yes. that is functional and able to be properly debated and be able to make it through the whole process and not get hung up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so someone who likes to like develop connections and reach out and work individually with people, mm -hmm. I think is a good fit. Agreed. They need to not be intimidated by kind of tough um, academic language, since a lot of what they end up doing is looking at the language of the Constitution or the law or looking at like case law um, that's often not written in the most accessible way. So you'd need a student mm -hmm. who's not intimidated by that and who can uh, make good sense of that. Um, and in an assistant attorney general, it's particularly important, I think, that you've got a student who recognizes the importance of um, working for the team. And so if you've got a student who's so committed to a particular way of seeing the Constitution that that would be really, really hard for them, maybe they could be a state AG, um, although they'd have to be one who was able to listen to their team, but they would definitely struggle as an assistant. Did you have anything else to say about the assistant AG? Well, role? every time we bring up the AG's office, we try to think about um, what to do about the problem of the attorneys general running out of business, because by Friday, usually the things that they have to speak on is pretty limited. Uh, so uh, I was thinking about this and I came up with a new idea this time that I haven't shared before. And so if you're OK with Ooh. it, I'll share it. Yes. Well, I was thinking that by late on Friday, there's a stack of legislation that the youth governor has already signed. And that it would be kind of interesting if the attorneys general then sort of worked as advocates for our legislature by contacting the real legislative offices directly um, to say, hey, you know, we'd love to share some information with you about some laws that were passed by the youth legislature this session um, can we share this 
coffee with you or is it possible to meet with someone on Friday afternoon? Like I, I think it might be kind of a nice yeah. use of their expertise and their abilities as advocates uh, to sort of speak on behalf of our legislature to some real people. But I don't know, what do you think? That's a very cool idea. That would be a really cool way to, I think, a skill to develop in the student leaders of being able to reach out to legislators or legislative staff. Yeah. Um, that'd be fun. I will say, though, um, our rules of order do not require the chambers to consider legislation from the other chamber until Saturday morning. That's true. So it is conceivable in a bizarro world year that the House and Senate would be conducting solely their own business until Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And there would be, this would not be a thing that would be a Friday afternoon activity. It would be a Saturday morning activity. So I would say maybe more along the lines of preparing packets with a personalized letter. Yeah. The the packets thing I think makes sense. I'm also thinking though about the, the bills passed by our freshmen in the O'Brien House and Sherbrooke Senate. That's true. Those do not go through both chambers currently. Yeah. I think that's a fascinating idea. I think you're making a good observation, though. A lot of what they'd really have to get ready to go would be Saturday morning. And and so, yeah, there would be some different kinds of work here, maybe. They wouldn't have to submit things that were passed and signed. Oh, sure. It could just be a, a gathering of representative documents. Yeah. That's very cool. Well, um, does that complete our elections roundup? It does. Cool, cool. Um, We'll move right along to announcements and what's coming up next week on Yagging Recreation. We're going to wrap this whole series up uh, with an exploration of the rules in relationship to leadership. Yes. And uh, the phrase Parley Pro as a tool is one that um, I'd like to unpack a little bit. By now, people know Parley Pro means parliamentary procedure, I hope. I hope so, but it's a good thing to repeat. Maybe we'll just do an abbreviations and acronyms episode. Mm, Good idea. If you'd like to suggest a topic for us to discuss, you're always welcome to reach out to us at yagandrecreation at gmail.com. I believe that concludes our announcements, so I would like to entertain a motion to adjourn this podcast. I so move. Is there a second? Second. Great. All those in favor of adjourning this podcast, please say aye. Aye. Those opposed? Motion passes. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Yag and Recreation, an Up Till 2 Productions podcast. Yag and Recreation is co-written and co-hosted by my sister, Anna Hazen, and by me, James Rosenzweig, and edited solely by the multi-talented Anna Hazen. Thanks also go to Tanum Fotheringo, our program and coolness consultant, to Jeff Hazen for composing and recording our introductory music and providing on-call technical support, and to Ben and Sam Hazen for additional incidental music and fully artist work. We'll see you next week. And that's all for today.